0: well if you've uh, heard me before I've got a lot of information to cover Um, I'm accused of giving people a drink out of a fire hydrant so I'm not going to give you a test at the end of this to see how much you remember I always start with this scripture trust in the Lord with all thine heart lean not to your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge Him and He's the one who directs your paths Uh, that's Proverbs 3 5 and 6 and that is a particular way of thinking and today I'm going to go through the difference of ways of thinking uh, first of all, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Uh, Colossians 3.2, set your affection on things above. So when we set our mind on things above, uh, we are setting our mind upon Him. And that's a way of thinking. You're, you're, you're concerned about what uh, the parent told you to do. Uh, Carl Rogers in Rogerian Psychology said before therapy, uh, before we get a hold of you, uh, the client would say, well, what would my parents say? But something happens in the world in relationship in our feelings so where we change from what would God's want me to do to what does it mean to me and that is the dynamo that changes us from absolutes to relativism and so we're to set our affection on things above and not lean to our own understanding uh, and again Colossians set our affections not on things on this earth and it's very easy to set our affections on the things of this world we come into this world with that as the predominant way of thinking uh, and we find this setting your mind on the things of this world in Genesis 3 1 through 6 uh, now the serpent was more subtle than the beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said unto the woman yea if God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden and the woman said unto the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God has said you shall not eat of it neither shall ye touch it lest ye die I'm gonna get ahead of myself what she shared was not what God said she shared her opinion of what God said and opinions are always embedded what's embedded in opinion is our feelings our feelings of resentment towards what God said In other words we have some earthly desire Uh, We're going to inject into what God, parent, uh, and this is what the courts did, inject even into what the framers of the Constitution. So this is a a way of thinking. Uh, Today, opinions are treated like truth. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And this is a way of thinking. It's called Evaluating. Uh, We're all skilled at evaluating, determining for ourselves what's right and wrong rather than trusting in the Lord uh, in what he's told us is right and wrong. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now that is a particular way of thinking. The first way of thinking, trusting the Lord with all your heart, is referred to as a didactic paradigm it's obey. Uh, There is right and there is wrong and if you do what's right you're blessed and if you do what's wrong you're cursed. That's a traditional uh, referred to as a patriarchal paradigm. But leaning to your own understanding means we can justify what we're doing. We're using our heads, we're enlightened, we're intellectual and uh, we're able to then shift and change. We think we're not wrong. See if you can justify your disobedience, then it's no longer disobedience. See, and so this right and wrong way of thinking is no longer relevant. Uh, and so Genesis 3, 1 through 6 is the practice or the praxis, Name from the National Test for Teachers is praxis. It simply means to practice the dialectical process or this way of thinking. In all our ways we're to acknowledge Him. This is where Christians in particular have learned environmental impact studies. Now, if you're a humanist, you don't really have to worry about environmental impact studies because you're in the brotherhood, you're in the world. But for a Christian to get along in the world, then you have to come into the room and look around and say, how much of the Lord can I share here and not interfere with my job, promotion, next term in office, respect with the relatives? And so we've all learned how to shape what God said into an opinion format so we can get along with one another. This is a common praxis of our human nature. Uh, But no, we're to acknowledge him in all things, and that will get you in trouble. And he's the one, then, who directs our paths. So that's a didactic paradigm. That's obey, don't disobey, do what is right, don't do what is wrong. Uh, We believe, I can title this, uh, rather than what I call it, diaprax, I can title this, believing despite the evidence. Because you can use this process in the church, and people can call themselves Christians. Christians you have to understand the Soviet system there was no problem with Christians the problem with was believers right. believers who insisted that what God said he said and there is no other option uh, the other day I was at a home I was sharing this and I use an example sometimes when the young are there and I'll say well you know when somebody tells you, you can't do something you only have two choices of course, I was expecting obey or disobey, and I turned to this young man, and I said, what are the choices? And he goes, obey. <laughs> there was no other choice. <laughs> and I thought, how refreshing. You don't hear that today. <laughs> he didn't even think of the disobedience. <laughs> it, and this is Karl Marx. I'm going to give a lot of quotes on Karl Marx, because uh, he, he didn't come up with anything new. He just made it uh, in your face. Uh, in direct contrast to German philosophy, uh, which descends from heaven to earth, and he's, he's turning Hegel upside down. Hegel's Gnostic, Hermetic, Kabbalah, you know, back to Babylonia, back to the garden. Uh, he's saying, there's no truth above us, truth is within us. He says, here we ascend from earth to heaven. In other words, we're going to create uh, heaven on earth. And so he saw man's paradigm, uh, that it must shift from looking upward uh, to earthward, uh, to shift from a paradigm focusing on contrast. The word of God is contrast. You know, God says, I'm from above, you're from below. I'm the creator, you're the created. Uh, Do what's good, do not do what's evil. Uh, Light versus dark, saved or lost, sheep or goats, heaven or hell. So it's always contrast in the word of God. And yet, you see, with us, it's always similar. Johnny gets to go out. Why can't I go out? Well, Johnny's 16 and you're 5, you know. Uh, And so we're always finding some reason to justify because somebody else is doing it. Uh, this is the very same thing that happened in the garden. Now, we'll go through this in, in a little bit. Uh, what we have in common with one another and the environment or environmentalism. A friend took me to a, a mega church out in Seattle. Uh, and the minister spoke on Joseph. I didn't know Joseph was a Christian, but that's what he said he was. And it was a 45-minute of fifth-grade level misinterpretation of Scripture. And then at the end he said, you know, Joseph learned to live within the system. So we need to learn, within, learn to live within the system. Uh, quit criticizing and uh, focus on the common cause. And I I, I was really frustrated, you know. Actually, I was very upset because this was apostasy. You see, if you focus on the common cause, you know God has a definition for that? Reprobate. See, you're holy, peculiar, sanctified, set apart, the called out ones. Why would you focus on the common cause? People who focus on the common cause, I came up with a new definition from that meeting. They're common causes. (laughs) Uh, they, They have sacrificed their soul for the village for the collective and your soul is precious to God on the day of judgment the way you live before him is he determined whether you're going to live forever or die forever and so it's danger to focus on this common cause. Man's paradigm is a reversal of godly paradigm man's paradigm is good is turned into evil and evil is turned into good. In other words what we have in common becomes good and anything that causes division is evil uh, where truth is treated as an opinion. So you can come in with the text, the Word of God, and share it in a Bible study, and all of a sudden you find out that you're going to be labeled negative and divisive, hateful, intolerant, prejudiced, maladjusted, lower, thinker, aggressor, blocker, dominator, specialist, or spreader. All kinds of terms convince you that you need counseling, and that opinions are treated as truth. And so everything's turned around. Well, this process I call diaprax. Uh, it's simply two words: the dialectical process, and the Greek word praxis, which simply means to practice. In other words, we're going to practice the dialectical process. We're going to practice Genesis 3:1 through 6. This is the core, the foundation for humanism, socialism, communism, environmentalism, globalism, lots of isms. Uh, it's the evaluation of everything through human eyes. In other words, how I see it, and through human ears. Uh, well, how I hear it, and through human reasoning, what I think about it. Uh, Carl Rogers, uh, famous uh, for Rogerian psychology, if you're into counseling, you've taken his uh, material and ingested it to, to apply it. He said, Experience is for me the highest authority. Uh, Marx put it this way having eyes which are human eyes and ears that are human ears. See, God says having ears they cannot hear and eyes they cannot see. Well, why? Because we have humanized. Now, the word human is not found in the Word of God. Man is found in the Word of God. Hume is of the earth. And so if we have to have human rights, then any, anyone who comes in with this is right and that is wrong that interferes with what we all have in common, Hume, uh, is not to be recognized. Uh, they, maybe they shouldn't have children. Maybe they shouldn't be in any position of policy uh, in the community. So in the dialectical process, it's a redefining of God's word through human eyes and human ears and human reasoning. And this is what I had learned when I went to college. I went to a Christian college to earn a teacher's degree. My mom taught in the public schools. Teaching is an honorable profession. I have teachers come to meetings all the time. And halfway through, usually, they have some tears in their eyes because they realize all of a sudden somebody's putting some dots together why they're so miserable going through in-service training. There's something wrong going on. Well, I knew something wrong, but, you know, as a child who learned to obey authority, I just incorporated what the teachers taught me. And by my senior year, I was living in sin and rebellion. I had learned how to take God's word and redefine it, and we can do that so I could feel better about myself and be less offensive to others. I only had one verse left, and that was, remember your first love. I couldn't get out of my life that love and joy and peace that I had with the Lord before I got involved in all this academia. So one evening I took the word of God, put it on the side of a coffee table and the books of my profession on the other side. And I sat, it took four hours, hard-headed I guess, <laughs> uh, slow-minded whatever. It took me four hours to realize I couldn't bring the two together. Now that didn't make any sense because my mom had faith and she taught. Why couldn't I bring my faith into the method I was trained in? But you see, she was uh, teaching at a time where she could have the Ten Commandments on a public schoolhouse walls. She could pray with her students in the public classroom. She could read scriptures to her students in the public classroom. In fact, the scriptures in the public textbooks. And she could spank her students. Now, when I went to college, that was all gone. And so we had learned a new way of thinking. No longer were we accountable to our authority, we were accountable to man. And so it was no longer a teacher-student top-down system, it was teacher-student partnership. And that way of thinking actually directly affected my faith. And so after the four hours, I came to realize I had to accept the Word of God as is. I I didn't miss a connecting class of the process and my faith, because you will not be able to keep your faith in the process. And uh, so when I did accept his word as is, which meant I had to go in and accept it as is. I couldn't go in and change it. I had to go in and let it change me. And when I accepted this as my authority, then I repented of my sin, and his love and his joy and his peace came back into my life. Well, I knew I couldn't use the process I was trained in because it would not only continue to challenge and destroy my faith, it would destroy the faith of every child who came in my classroom. So I went off to seminary, thought that was a good place to get my head straightened out. My heart was right with the Lord. And then uh, halfway through, I started running into the very same process. This is back in 74. And so I'd had enough of it, had four classes to finish. I was halfway through and I just said, you know, my faith is more important than any piece of paper. So I went into a profession that doesn't mess with your head. I went into construction. Uh, no such thing as a board stretcher. You, you cut a board short, it's your fault. You know, <laughs> Measure twice, cut once, attend to facts. Uh, and so I ended up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, raising my family and running my own business and had a chance to go back to a major university there. Uh, focused on European history and philosophy, stayed away from education, stayed away from theology, hadn't figured all that out, didn't mean I wasn't in the scriptures, I was studying the word of God, I wasn't studying men's opinion of the word of God, I had enough of that, and I saw where that went, because with men's opinion, what do we do, we rearrange God's word, so it does not interfere with our relationship, see Jesus said, I haven't come to bring peace, now he's not against the family structure, you know, the the father, you know, uh, but he said, I have come to divide the father from the son, the mother from the daughter, the mother-in-law from the daughter-in-law. How's the relationship going? See, it's, it's, is God against relationship? No, he said, it is not good that man be alone. So relationship is a key part of our life, but it is not the foundation for our life. Unity is in the scripture, but it's unity in doctrine, where two or three are gathered in my name. That's a position in him. There is where he is. But when unity becomes the agenda, when our relationship with one another becomes the agenda, then we have to redefine Jesus, make him user-friendly, non-offensive, and readily adaptable to change. And, and that language is, well, how do you feel and what do you think, instead of what do you know. My people are destroyed for lack of feeling and thinking skills. Is that what the scriptures say? You know, doing evaluation, impact studies. No, my people are destroyed for lack of knowing. How do you know? Because he said it. Do you believe what he said? Or do you have to reevaluate what he said in light of what it might do with the relationships you want to keep around you? And so it's easy to learn this process. Uh, well, Adorno, a Marxist out of Berkeley, wrote a book called The Authoritarian Personality. He said the scientific study of ideology can only be made on the basis of theory what he's saying is that uh, what's true science has to be observable, repeatable. It's materialism. So any truth that you bring into the room, any the word of God, you bring in it as is, then it has to be treated as an opinion. Uh, truth must be treated as an opinion. And if we can do that, we can all get along. But if you insist that the word of God is, like God said, I am that I am, and you're not moving for anybody uh, then there's a problem with you. You're intolerant. You see the word tolerance. You hear about it. The word tolerance isn't showing up on the day of judgment. God is not tolerant. There isn't a law of nature that's tolerant. Jump out of a plane at 20,000 feet and find out how tolerant patient, or gravity is. Now as long as you're falling, patience. God is patient and so is gravity. Uh, you can have your opinions all you want. You can go, I feel and I think and I feel and I think. Eventually you're hitting an object and you're, at that moment your opinion doesn't count it's the truth that sets you free now I have friends now that we're in a dialectical world they have learned the truth sets you free the truth is liberating it'll liberate you from promotion next term in office respect with your relatives uh, good grades because the agenda of the world today is to practice lying and you come in and you speak the truth and even you know you're supposed to do it in love and you do it in love and it's people still don't get it they consider you hateful uh, because they can accept your opinions of the truth with your feelings, but they can't expect, accept the truth. We want truth, but not that much truth. Karl Marx wrote eleven thesis on Fourierbach. Uh, this is the most popular one. Even if you study contemporary American education, you'll end up on this quote. In fact, all our candidates are running on this quote. The philosophers all interpret the world in different ways. Uh, in other words, we all come in here with our opinions, and but the problem with your opinion is you believe it, you're treating it as a truth and as a fact, and we can't have that. So let's put aside our differences, focus on what we have in common, and we'll practice change. So everybody's running on change, on Karl Marx's Feuerbach thesis number eleven. Uh, and and if we change, if we become adaptable to change, then we can all get along. And, I, and I'm not saying you know we can discuss our opinions on carpets and other things like that, but when it comes to God's word. We cannot. If you and I disagree on the word of God, where do we go? We go back to the text. And that might be 20 years before I understand what you're saying. But in those 20 years, I'm going back and applying myself to the word of God. Now, if I apply myself to the opinion of men, see, Christians are running down to the Christian bookstore getting everybody's opinion of the word of God. Now, it's okay to share your opinion as long as that opinion takes people to the source, to the text. So they'll grow. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Not your opinion. I don't want to hide your opinion in my heart. Because you can change your opinion tomorrow. And I say, no, I spent all night memorizing that one. i got to start all over again. <laughs> I don't have a problem with God's Word. So I might not... See, I hold your opinion in my heart so I won't offend you. But I hold God's Word in my heart so I might not sin against Him. Uh, it's a different way of thinking. Well, the American Revolution was limited government. Uh, This is George Washington's farewell address. Uh, He said in the middle of it, the spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the power of all departments into one. In other words, you're looking to a man to lead you out of the problem. It's a love of power and it predominates in the human heart. And so we put checks and balances in government. Uh, Well, we recognized in early America that you're accountable to higher authority. What's the purpose of limiting government when you believe you're accountable to higher authority? the, The greatest authority is in the conscience. The whole American Revolution was unique because it was the freedom of the conscience. And as you'll see later on, it's the family, the traditional family, that develops the conscience. Because the parents teach the children this is right and that is not right, and develop a strong conscience. And then you can have a civil society, a moral and religious society. Uh, you know, Madison said the Constitution cannot function without a moral and religious people. And they, so we limited government so the homes could train their children up. And, of course, the Bible was foundational. That was accountability to higher authority, too. So we have accountability to God. Uh, you're accountable as a child to your parents. You're accountable to the boss as a worker. And as a legislator and, or judge or president, you're accountable to the contract with the citizens. Well, that certainly changed in the 50s. Uh, this is referred to as a patriarchal paradigm. Uh, we get patriotism. Uh, there's a loyalty to a voice above man. But the French Revolution was different. Now, the reason I'm sharing this is because as I was taking these classes uh, at this Christian university in Tulsa, uh, the first professor classes I took was, he had earned his doctor's degree on how Hitler had taken the minds of the youth in Germany and restructured them for his own purpose. I took every Russian, German, European history class he offered. Uh, another professor, Ernie's doctor's degree on the French Revolution, and that was an important revolution. We are now practicing the principles of the French Revolution, so what I'm sharing here is showing you the difference between what happened in our culture and what happened in the to the French people uh, because of this directorate. Uh, well, Later, George Lukash, Mikhail Gorbachev's philosophical foundation, he put it this way, the Workers' Council, which was, by the way, the directorate gave the example of the Workers' Council, will eliminate the separation of legislature, administration, and judiciary. In other words, it's a consolidating of all departments into one, and that's the Politburo system. Uh, Marx was concerned because he saw this separation of power uh, as causing a freedom for individuals to determine what's right and wrong because if you have at the top down with all department in one then somehow, some way, man is up there can determine what's right and wrong, not God. And so we're we're, we're humanized. Both Christianity, Mark said, and the workers' socialism preach forthcoming salvation from bondage and misery. And what he's saying here is, now Jesus, for the Christian, died on the cross For our sins but to the social mindset. Because they can go to the scriptures too. They say Jesus died to it. He was an emancipator from the establishment. See and so all of a sudden no longer is the focus to me and my sin before a holy God. It's to my sin with the village. Uh, Christianity places salvation in his life beyond after death in heaven. But socialism places it in this world, in a transformational of society. Now, when Goals 2000 came on the scene 20 years ago, it was entitled Transformational Outcomes. Not traditional outcome-based education, but transformational outcome-based education. In other words, the outcome in education was no longer going to be teaching children to be accountable to higher authority. That's why my mom could spank in the classroom. Doesn't matter how you feel or what you think. This is truth, and what you did was not true. This is right, and what you did was wrong. You cannot have right and wrong without chastening. And see, what happened was, and you'll see this: there is no right or wrong. Everything's relative, so you have no right to chasten. You just need some re-education, remediation. Uh, and so, sin is the estrangement of man from man, but that has been changed. Sin is now the estrangement of man, excuse me, man from God. Sin is now the estrangement of man from man. And so human relationship, again, becomes our focus. Rousseau, uh, foundational thought to the French Revolution. He says, the humble Christians changed their tune and soon the so-called kingdom of the other world was seen to become, under a, soon to become, uh, under a visible rule, the most violent despotism of this world in Christian states. Well, you know, he's actually speaking the truth because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet we can change that. We can say, well, we need to usher in the kingdom of God. See, we want God in our kingdom. i got news for you. He's not coming into our kingdom. Uh, We need to be in his kingdom and proclaiming the truth to a world that is rapidly approaching judgment. Uh, Well, then uh, Mark said, Someday the worker must overthrow the old politics which sustains the old institutions, and what's he saying here? This institution that believes you're accountable to a higher authority has to be overthrown. doesn't matter what it is, work, government, education, church, if he is not to lose heaven on earth. And then he says, uh, this is Fubach thesis number four, and I'll get into this a little later, he says, once the earthly family is discovered to be the secret of the heavenly family, the former must be annihilated both in theory and practice. Uh, So, you know, what does the earthly family do? Were you ever chastened? You know, there's the woodshed. Now, you didn't go whoopee when you went to the woodshed. You were going whoopee in the woodshed. Because you were being taught there is right and there's wrong. Well, God chastens those who are His. And so, there's the correlation. And so you have to remove this chastening. There's reprove and correct and rebuke from the Word of God. Because if we go to our opinions, do you realize you have no right to chasten on opinions? and yet we have a state assessment test An assessment is opinion so you can punish your own children in your state on somebody's opinion see we're not teaching facts anymore we're teaching to practice opinions and if you don't practice opinions then you will be punished uh... this is Lenin's statements millions of people died from this speech 1920 a more powerful enemy the bourgeoisie now i wish i'd understood who the bourgeoisie the bourgeoisie are the parents the proletariat are the rebellious children. It's that simple. And so the, a more powerful enemy, he says, the parents, the bourgeoisie, those who instruct that you're accountable to higher authority, whose resistance and whose power lie in the force of habit, in the strength of small-scale production. Oh, you notice that everything has to be certified today. And you have to get in meetings and make sure you're concerned about how other people feel and what they think rather than the product you're... We're not a producer-driven society anymore. We're consumer-driven and if we're a consumer-driven society and we're no longer producing, then China can produce and we're the consumers, and then they can say, you know what, we don't want to produce for you anymore. And then you'll find out what consumers do when they can't get their goods. It's like giving your children everything they want, and then you pull the, you know, the, <laughs> you pull the funds out of their checking account, and all of a sudden you find out their sweet, wonderful, caring children and say, we care about you? No. Uh, they become your worst enemy. Uh, Well, they feel oppressed, definitely. Small-scale production engenders capitalism, and the bourgeoisie continuously, daily, hourly, spontaneously, and on a small mass scale. Oh, you would think that this would be the grassroots, wouldn't it? Well, it's all about grassroots movement. We forgot to define the grass. You know, crabgrass, encroaching on everything. Well, it's it's not the grassroots that is moving what's happening in our society today. If it is anything, it's our flesh, if that's the grass you want to define. Human nature, the, flaw, the peasantry constantly regenerates the bourgeoisie in positively every sphere of activity in life. In other words, that traditional home is producing children who think they're accountable to higher authority, and they go out and they tell everybody else they are accountable to higher authority and no longer accountable to man. Gigantic, he says this is a gigantic problem of re-education. In other words, we've got to re-educate a whole society. By the way, the word re-education is synonymous to brainwashing. I have to wash from your brain the effect of the old education. So you don't think about it anymore. So you don't practice it anymore. Eradication, eradicating their bourgeoisie habits and tradition. Eradication is a pretty powerful word. Until small-scale economy and small commodity production have entirely disappeared. The bourgeoisie atmosphere will hamper proletariat work, both the children's work, the rebellious revolutionary mind, both outside and within the working class movement. We must learn how to eradicate all bourgeoisie habits, all parental habits, all of the habits that God gives you. You're accountable to higher authority, customs and traditions everywhere. So, the public private partnership, heard about that? Concerning environmental and social issues is a Soviet. Now, I happen to take a law class under John Whitehead. He's argued cases before the Supreme Court. He insisted that we go to the source. I'm giving you just a little bit. I have 2,800 slides. So we won't even come close to that today. Uh, but he said, go to the source. And so we read 1,600 pages of Supreme Court decisions. We studied how our courts moved from accountability to authority to accountability to man. Uh, they went to the social psychologists, got the zeitgeist, the pulse of the nation, uh, with polls and surveys. Uh, even the church has embraced this. You know, we have a new Bible that says, Go ye therefore and take polls and surveys. Uh, no longer preach and teach because it's no longer an issue of right and wrong. It's an issue of opinions. And so the courts moved away from what the framers' intent was to uh, what they, their their opinions were. And uh, so as I took that class, very important to understand where we had moved from, what the courts were doing in the 50s and 60s, and then the last class I took at that university was from a professor who had earned his doctor's degree. Uh, out of Harvard, I'd had several do that, but his was unique that he'd earned it in communist Yugoslavia. I had a chance to study the Soviet form of government, Tito's form, unique amongst all the other satellite countries. Studied the polar system. So when I saw Ghost 2000 come on the scene, I watched TV for a couple of weeks and started talking to it. I don't know if you ever talked to your TV. I kept saying, we can't be this stupid. I knew what the Soviet system was, and I was staring at it. Is is not the American public aware of what... I mean, we fought the Soviet system. Don't we know what we were fighting? No. You go to the Encyclopedia Britannica, you will not find a clear definition of the Soviet. Why would I explain what I'm doing to you when I'm trying to deceive you? You can't even go to the dictionary and find a clear definition of the Soviet. The Soviet is the public-private partnership and especially when you talk about social issues it's the community family partnership any institution that comes in to help your home the dad's to rule he's the he's the head of the home and somebody comes in and says you know what we need to get the dad to dialogue with the children and when you focus on the children you just destroyed dad's office You can't do it. Now, the social engineers knew that. And then they said, well, you know what? We need to dialogue and build relationship. And then the church got on board. And so now we're ashamed of the word of God because God has told us how we are to uh, function in our homes. And so once the community comes in, forces a partnership in the home and the community, then human relationship becomes the agenda. And that is a Soviet. Well, so we move from accountability... To a author, higher authority to accountability of man. And that's the brotherhood. See, we have inalienable rights, unalienable rights. No man can put a lien on those rights. So, those rights didn't come from man, they came from a higher authority. So, we've moved from inalienable rights to human rights. And what are human rights? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that which is of the world. So, if you come in and you say to those who want to practice lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, you're wrong, and God is right then you are the one who's causing dissension. You're the fundamental religious extremist. And you don't know how to get along. And you need to take counseling. And this is what the megachurch is all about. Learning to counsel to get along for the sake of human relationship. So we're accountable to man. And this is known as a heresy paradigm. Now, later on, I'm going to go through that chart. And we move from a patriarchal paradigm your countable high authority, through a matriarchal paradigm, which is, we just all get along. You know, it's the mom who doesn't recognize Scripture, say the desire of the heart of the wife is to the husband. No, her heart is now to herself and to her children. And the Bible says when the women rule, the children oppress. And no husband can rule. When God told Adam rule, and this is throughout Scripture, men are to rule. And I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, it's, it's, it's physiological. Because men are designed by God to rule. They're frustrated uh, if they don't have that uh, structure in place. And the desire of the wife is to relationship. Men bring law. Law is harsh. The wife brings justice. Justice doesn't defy law. It brings warmth and compassion and understanding to law. Now that's an office. All authority is of God. Now if the husband uses that office for himself, he's a tyrant. That's the definition of a tyrant. Anybody who uses the office for himself is a tyrant. But if he's in that office serving under God's instruction, then desire of the heart of the wife can be to the husband, and children, obey your parents and the Lord, and that's a patriarchal paradigm. And if you want world peace, you've got to get rid of that. The only way to world peace is the destruction of that paradigm in the home. And so the heart of the wife is, becomes matriarch. See, Satan didn't go after Adam, he went after Eve. The UN says, we're not going to go after the men. Men go to war. You know, they might fight back. What we'll do is go to the women. They want dialogue and they'll solve it. And the men will follow the women. And it's exactly what happened in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. And I'm going, well, why? Where are our ministers? Because, see, that's Satan's device. We're not supposed to be ignorant of Satan's device. The Marxists study those scriptures and they say, you know what? It really works. And that is the foundation of social psychology focus on the matriarch, get the desire of the heart of the wife to herself and to her children. And then the children, by the way, this is the heresy art. The children are in rebellion. They do whatever they feel like doing. Well, look at our culture. We, we have people who call themselves adults who are really children. The Bible said flee youthful lust. Well, they're not fleeing youthful lust. They're making it a mandate for society. Well, the French Revolution had the directorate a group of experts at the top getting the zeitgeist posts of the nation you know, with polls and surveys determining how we should all feel and think. Uh, it became the Politburo in the Soviet system and today we have it all across our nation, unfortunately even in the church facilitated meetings seeking consensus. Now consensus is not found in the Word of God. It's confirmation. Consensus means with the sensuous, with the flesh. How are you going to build a church on the flesh? It's confirmation. You come in, the Lord gives you a word, you share His word, He's given you, and there's a yea or nay. The Bible says let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Anything more than that is of evil. See, God's not opinion. And when He speaks to you, it's not an opinion. You know, on the day of Pentecost, they didn't share the word of God as an opinion because people's response was, what must we do? Okay. But now today it's Again, how you feel, what do you think? Well, the dialectical process rejects God's definition of man. You can't come into rooms today and define man this way. Uh, Man is not good. He does not will to do good, and his passions are not okay. Uh, That's very biblical, and that is a way of thinking. It's a didactic way of thinking. Uh, Only God is good. Now, here's the description for the world, if you want world peace, for all this in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, which, by the way, is not of the Father. See, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, but is of the world. And so what do we have in common? Every one of us, every soul on the face of the earth, China, you know, Asia, Africa, Americas, you know, we're all uniting on this. Europe, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's the only platform you have for world unity. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's going to be division between believers and the Gnostic Christians. This is the, the, when you focus on the relationship with one another over what God has given you to share, to speak the truth in love. Uh, that is what Gnosticism was all about. The dialectic defines man this way. Man is basically good. He wills to do good, and his passions are okay. That's Aristotelian thought. And so the good and evil in man is determined by his environmental press. In other words, you're raised in an unhealthy environment. That's your problem. You're like a magnet coming through a room, and there's iron, iron filings in the room, and they attach to you, and you come out contaminated. So what we have to do is create, a, first identify what a healthy environment is because we know you're good. And the only way that we can find out how you're good is to see what's common with everybody on the face of the earth. And we identify those attributes that we all have in common and that's the goodness of man. And once we identify that as what's good, then we have to create an environment that will guarantee that good. And we therefore have to identify the elements that prevent that from happening. Uh, therefore, re-education, not repentance, is the means to man's salvation. Because repentance means you simply repent of your behavior to a standard that's above you. And you, you followed your behavior because you wanted to bond with Mother Earth, Guy, and the cosmic forces. So you wanted social harmony, you wanted the approval of men. You wanted to respect a man. And God says he's not a respecter of men. And if you follow him, you're going to find out you're not going to be treated with respect by men. Bismarck said he didn't understand Hegel, but he knew how to use him. Ridicule, ridicule, ridicule. In other words, ridicule. Anybody who comes into the room says this is right and that is not. They you know, say, well, you're just going to the, back, the past. No, there is no past. You know, we can't go back to the past. You know, and so that's the same road. We're all on the same road. And I'm just saying, no, we're not on the same road. There are two roads. There's the right road and the wrong road. And yet the world wants you just to think that what you want to do is just ideas of the past and we're all on the same road. You need to have some re-education and catch up with us and we can all... You know, the church has to be contemporary. I I like language. Contemporary. You know what that means, with the temporary. Why would the church unite with the temporary? See? We unite with the flesh because you notice the flesh is temporary. And so we embrace this sensuousness of all for the sake of unity. Change the environment, and you change the man. So in the French Revolution, what they did was they identified unhealthy elements. Now, let's un- remove the unhealthy elements so the next generation can be raised in this healthy environment, and then we'll have the goodness of man uh, for the rest of the world, you know, the rest of time. Well, everybody who went to the guillotine was an effort to remove unhealthy elements from the environment for the sake of the next generation. See, Everybody who was shot in the Soviet system was an effort to remove unhealthy elements from the environment for the sake of the next generation and their goodness. Uh, So the environmental conditions determine man's health. So today we have environment control. That's what it's all about. It's all about power and control so that you can change the way you think. Um, Marx put it this way, it's not individualism that fulfills the individual, on contrary it destroys him. Society is a necessary framework through which freedom and individuality are made realities. In other words, it doesn't take the village to raise a child; it takes the village to change the way. It takes the village to change the parents' way of of training the child up. See, the village changes the parents. Only within a social context, individual man is uh, able to realize his own potential as a rational being. Now, later, Max Horkheimer, a Marxist member of the Frankfurt School. Uh, He writes, Protestantism is the strongest force in the extension of cold rational individualism. So you have to get rid of that Protestant work ethic. Doing your best to the glory of God. You got to do it for the village, not for God. Oh, you can incorporate God. See, Jesus dealt with those. He says, there are those who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at all we did for the village in your name. And what's his response? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I didn't know you. How does he know you? You repent before a holy and pure and righteous God. You realize you're wicked and there is no good in you. It's the only way. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. If you're righteous, you know, and they say, here come the judge mocking. See, we, you know, why legislate morality? Well, if you don't uh, present laws out there saying there's right and wrong, then what you do is you legislate immorality. There is no right or wrong. We have postmodernism. If, if you feel like doing it, just do it. I'm okay, you're okay. Can't we all just get along? You know, I'm sure there were people trying to say that to God when he flooded the world. <laughs> on the day of judgment, you know. God, can't we all get along? Oh, my opinion. You know, share your opinion on the day of judgment and see how far it's going to go. You know, I mentioned the the laws. The next breath you take is a gift from God. Every breath you'll ever take, every breath you've taken has been a gift from God. And you can say, well, I don't believe that. Fine. He'll give you 120 years to take those free gifts from Him. See, the next breath you take is from Him. But when you take that last breath, you're meeting an object. And at that moment, it doesn't matter how you feel or what you think. Every one of us, personally, individually, accountable before God. No no group grade. Village doesn't have an input. Why are we concerned about how people feel about us and what people think about us when on a day of judgment, it doesn't matter? It's what God says, and yet that is such a big part of our life. Every one of us come into a room, even here today, We're conscious of others around us and we're concerned about whether we'll get respect or not respect from them. It's not good that man be alone. But this cannot be our foundation. See, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. See, all other ground is shifting sand. So all my friends and relatives are shifting sand. (laughs) The village is shifting sand. Uh, Even the fellowship in the church is shifting sand. He's the rock. And so we reprove and correct and rebuke one another in love from Him. Because he, God knows how to do it in love. If we do it, it's out of hate. Because we don't like the way you're behaving. You know, I don't like the way you're behaving, so I just want something out of this relationship for me. It's selfish. So to what God desires. So, so they had to get rid of this uh, top-down way of thinking, even in a church. So you have to identify the healthy environment. And once you identify it, uh, give you an example. Paul Tillich... Uh, was a member of the Frankfurt School. He met with him in Frankfurt, Germany, a Marxist group. Came to Harvard in the United States in 32. Leonard Wheat, who, uh, one author says he's an atheist, even if he's an atheist, he did a pretty good work on his book, uh, Paul Tillich's dialectic humanism, unmasking the God above God. In other words, we're God and so some people think there's a God above us. No, we've got to get rid of that way of thinking. And Tillich this author says it's telling those Christians who can hear that they can accept humanism without relinquishing Christianity if they will accept man as a true meaning of God ever been in a Bible study where you have many translations interpretations and the persons up there with a book called an extrapolation In other words he's picking and choosing the so-called translations. a lot of them are interpretations which are opinions and so that causes confusion in the room because you come in and you say well here's what my verse is uh, King James says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, and I share that and then somebody else has a message and they say, As above, so below. Sounds sort of similar. But you say, no, that's not the same. As a, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is totally different than as above, so below. You don't know why. Just something is telling you. Discernment doesn't give you the answer. Discernment says something's wrong here. And you keep insisting before long, everybody in the room's mad at you. Can't we all get along? You're causing dissension. You're causing division in the fellowship. Well, Rick Warren, you know, his Purpose Driven Life book, uh, he has that in there, as Above, So Below. Now, he has a doctor's degree from Fuller. He knows what he's doing. Spent a half a year on the book. Worked with Peter Drucker, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, Peter Drucker, who was defending homosexuality up to the day he died. Major speech in Europe, 2004. That's good company to keep on, and, and then to develop material for the church. Well, he uses as above, so below. In his book, uh, Purpose Driven Life, that's a verse from the Satanist Bible. So discernment will tell you something's wrong, but you, you, all you can say is, well, something's wrong here. And everybody looks at you and says, well, what's wrong with you? No, it's not his book that's wrong. It's you, you who are wrong because you're not focusing on relationship. It's all trickery. It seduces you to put aside seeking the truth for the sake of the relationship. You don't have enough time. We don't have enough time to look at the scriptures to find out exactly what the Word of God says. Besides, you know, there's everybody's opinion of it. And so, you, you, so then it goes to the language of I feel and I think. He says, humanism asserts that the test of human conduct must be found in human experience. Concern for man replaces concern about pleasing God. In other words, we're concerned about the unity God's not against unity, but it's in Him. Humanism elevates man to the rank of God, that God is man, mankind, humanity. Salvation is a symbol, a symbol of becoming ultimately concerned about humanity. Salvation is the eternal present. In other words, we're concerned about the here and now. The answer to man's predicament lies in the realization by individual man, that all men are essentially one, and that one is God. So we find what we have all in common. We all have our opinions. If I can find that one opinion we can all agree on, then I have the group hug. We come to a consensus and we practice the worship of men, an orgiastic Dionysian moment, and we call it, uh, you know, group fellowship. It's not koinonia, by the way. It's an altered state of koinonia. It's an illusion. But it feels good. This self-realization is a return to union. Potential becomes actual. Now, the word potential, there is no potential of you and me before God. What what have you got to contribute to God? See, the best that you do today, the very best you do is a filthy rag before a holy and pure and righteous God. Now what are you going to give Him? Nothing. So there's no potential. But, oh you do have potential with Satan. He's just waiting for you to bond with the flesh and go with the world. To set your mind on things on the earth and on on things above. So man knows about God, this is Hegel, only insofar as God knows about himself is man, in man. In other words, God is discovering himself as we discover ourselves. Uh, this, is, this is the theologian. I was in seminary and went through this garbage, you know. Get me out of here. And, uh, but that's because, see, you have to be exposed to all the opinions of the world. and Well, that's really going to build your faith, isn't it? We're really not sure whether this person's right or that person's right. And, you know, we'll get all the information and then you can decide for yourself. And we're not going to the text to make that decision. We can, and Engels, uh, Frederick Engels says, uh, Marx's friend, we lay claim to the meaning of history. History, by the way, is being rewritten. But we see in history not the revelation of God, but of man and only of man. And then for those who like Carl Rogers, Rogerian Psychology, I spoke at conferences with Dr. William Colson. He co-authored books with Carl Rogers. Uh, well, Rogers writes in On Becoming a Person, a very popular book if, you, if you're into you know, psychology and all that. He says, neither the Bible nor the prophets, neither the revelations of God nor man can take precedence over my own direct experience. Uh, John Dewey said God is... God is a source of corruption in individuals. In other words, God corrupts you because He teaches you there's right and wrong and you don't know, you can't get along with others in the community. So the essence of man is not, Mark said, in an abstract inherent in each particular individual. In other words, he says, you know, Jesus does what the Father tells him to do. And then he says, I must go to the Father, and the Father will send you the Holy Spirit. And so you can walk around here as an individual speaking the word of God. And so there's, he's just saying this abstract inherent. We, we, abstract means, uh, you know, you really can't pick a, pin it down. It's above our human nature. Uh, it just doesn't make sense in a concrete, tangible form. We can't put it in a test tube and analyze it. Uh, and so he's saying there is nothing. There is no God. Uh, And and the Holy Spirit can be treated this way too, you know. It's just the spirit, the spirit of the group. So this this is gestalt. The sum is greater than the parts. See, if we take 20 bricks and I pile them in a pile, you say, well, I say, what's the sum of these bricks? And you say 20, you're wrong. You pile a pile of bricks, and when you look at it, how, how does it feel when you look at a pile of bricks? If you walk on it, how does it feel? See, If you rearrange those bricks... So then you look at herringbone pattern and you go, wow, that's really neat. I like that sidewalk. And when you walk on it, it's comfortable. So it's our relationship that's the sum. It's not you as individuals anymore. You have no worth outside of the sum. See? And this is the Catholic Church. See, so you have to be a part of the group to have identity. And God says, no, you could. Luther was approached, said, are you the only right and the rest of Europe wrong? You know what his answer was? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Protestantism is confrontation. <laughs> it's not that you want to go out and argue. It's that when when wickedness or unrighteousness comes before you, you say that's wicked and that's unrighteous. By the way, I love you, and God loves you. The dialectical method was overthrown. This is George Lukash, Marxist, uh, who who uh, very popular in the in this uh, process. Uh, He stayed under Stalin and had to recant his work. But he says the dialectical method was overthrown. In other words, there's a problem. And the parts were prevented from binding their definition within the whole. So if you hold to the word of God and don't bond with the village, you're disrupting the dialectical method. If you're a believer, you're interfering with group harmonies and social harmony. The pressure's on the church. God doesn't mind. He's coming back for a spotless and pure bride. He's going to be refined. She's not going to bend her knees to the village, to the world. That's what Satan wanted Jesus to do in the wilderness, you know, bow down and worship me. He said, no, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. And so now we identify a healthy environment that has to have the human nature and create and sustain a healthy environment. Uh, and so, this is Rogers again, we cannot use good sense in human affairs until someone, unless someone engages in the design construction of environmental conditions which affect the behavior of man. So, the environment determines uh, your goodness. And so, again, we create a healthy environment and draws you in. Objectives can best be attained when the the individual is separated from earlier environmental conditions and when he is in association with a group of peers who are changing in much the same direction and who thus tend to reinforce each other. Uh, In other words this is how brainwashing is done. You isolate the individuals, you bring in people who've been processed and they all put pressure on this individual who is still holding to right and wrong sovereignty way of thinking. So the environment was the key. So ever been in a facilitated meeting, striving to a consensus, the role of the facilitator is to neutralize people who come in and say right, wrong, black, white. And so in a, in a traditional setting with Robert's Rules of the Border in the civic world, uh, it gives you 10 minutes to persuade others that your position is right. Uh, if a bridge was washed out, I'd, say, I'd ask you, do you know? The answers are in the questions so listen to the way I throw the question out uh, who in here knows how to fix a bridge you might be the only one, nobody else does and we spend the rest of the meeting talking to you because we're interested in facts and truth and then we get to the budget and then everybody else can participate but if I'm a facilitator uh, what I will do I won't ask you what you know because that doesn't bring the group in what I'll do is i say how do you feel well the 8 year old can say well I feel like it's a good thing You know, I used to ride my bike over the old one and I liked riding my bike over the new one the 12-year-olds can say, well, I think it should be pink. We can all share our opinions, and we can unite the village. And so this is Benjamin Bloom, and I'll get into him in a little bit. So I've got to isolate people, and I'll do that. I'll break you up in little subgroups, isolate traditional people so I don't have two or three together to reinforce that old-fashioned way of thinking. Well, you've heard about healthy schools and healthy communities and healthy churches. Welcome to the principles of the French Revolution. God doesn't change the environment, He changes our heart. It's the other way around. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now I struggled with this, this personal testimony here. Before I started out on this trip, we were on the road probably, uh, we're home three months out of the year. And we put in a garden, you know, we, we plant and water and our neighbor, you know, uh, weed and then our neighbors eat, you know, so uh, we're not home a lot of times. Well, I, before we started out, I was up two whole nights watering our trees because we had frost and they're all in bloom. And so, two weeks on the road, then we get this 25-degree freeze. And I, I'm sulking. Man, you, you, you spend time, you know, and you're just only once out of eight years we will get fruit and this this year was another gone year, you know, and they look so good, you know, just covered with blooms. And so my heart was broken and I was looking this way. And I realized, you know what? That's not where our heart is to be. That's not our treasure. This world is not our treasure. Where, we, where our heart, where our mind is, is where our treasure is. When God comes into that room, your treasure room, is he going to find the world in there? Or is he going to find what is of him? And that's where our heart is. Uh, for, uh, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Paul explains it this way. And I'm getting to the process. I'm just laying, you know, and the problem with sharing scripture is that you've heard it so often you start to doze out. You know, I've I've heard this before. But this is foundational to understanding what's happened to our culture. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bring me into captivity of the law of sin which is in my members. So there's two laws going on in me. Now the first one, somebody has to teach me. The other one, I come with it. We all come with the law of the flesh. Every child, you notice, has a law of the flesh. You ever stopped a two-year-old from doing what he wanted to do? You know, his face turns beat red, and thank God he's not big enough to get a gun because he would kill you. Serious. See, he would he would murder and he wouldn't even call it murder. You're just, you know, you're just in his way, and that's the flesh. That's the law of the flesh. But he says, with the mind. And mind, I love the law of God. Somebody has to teach you the law of God. Somebody has to get the flesh under control for you to hear the law of God. Oh, wretched man, he says, that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? So I'm carrying a body of death in me that wants to bond with the creation. See, you ever have to drag yourself out of bed? See, self loves the sleep, self loves the pleasure of this world. And you say, no, I got responsibilities. I'm accountable, I'm responsible. There's more than one of me. I, me, and myself. I can talk to myself. I can argue with myself. Every one of us, every child has an office. You're teaching them an office. When a parent chastens a child, chastening again is right and wrong. You're telling the child what you did was wrong. Get yourself under control. -control, Self-control, self-discipline. God says, humble yourself, deny yourself. And so Paul says, there is the word of God in me that I use. Thy word ever hid in my heart, so I might not sin against God, but I use that also to get self under control, because if I go with self, I'm going to be selfish. Now we have self-esteem. See that word in Scripture, esteem? That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination. Look at our culture. God knows exactly. God's word is impeccable exactly what we do. So then with the mind, he says, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Now, I'm where I want to begin. (laughs) Trust in the Lord with all your heart. See, government said trust us. Homeland Security says we want the citizens to feel safe at the airport. <laughs> well, what does the Bible say about trust? In early America, we didn't trust government. We put checks and balances, broke it up. Because that was a biblical understanding, unique to this nation. Cursed be the man who trusts in man. Who's the first man you trust in? Say, so when things go wrong, and Christians will say Jesus, but a pretty good chance it's not the Lord. First person you talk to is yourself. Somebody cuts you off and goes, round, 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 round. You murmur. God doesn't like murmurs. <laughs> saw that in Israel or in Egypt or in the wilderness. You know, they, they murmured and God, they wanted some meat and God gave them meat. Stuffed it down their throat. <laughs> Quit your murmuring. Obey me. Do what I tell you to do. But see, we listen to ourselves and we follow ourselves, our feelings, our educators, not educators, facilitators like these terms or these social engineers. Uh, natural inclination. You ever follow your natural inclination and hate yourself later? (laughs) The Bible says it's better you hate yourself first and don't follow your natural inclination. Park a car on an inclination and leave it to its natural inclination. What happens to the car? Look at our culture. Junk pile at the bottom of the hill. We're having a good time going. You know, It's the journey. We don't care where we're going. Broad is that path and uh... so natural inclination we're just following and we curse ourselves when we do that so there's our trust. heart. God's not impressed with our heart socialism, environmentalism, cosmicism, all of the isms is all built on the heart you own a piece of land, you have some fruit trees, somebody's hungry, hop over the fence, they aim for the trees and you call the sheriff you're so heartless can't we all just get along? And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, you know, but I'm just simply saying there comes a time when the whole village is doing it. You go, wait, wait a minute. There's a thing called privates, <laughs> you know. You don't, by the way, own a private property. There is no private property. Don't pay your taxes for three years and find out how much private property you own. Uh, you're on the king's land. That's foreign, by the way. In early America, up to 1860, there was no tax on land. So now we've so embraced it, you know, we don't even know what freedom is anymore. Can't relate with it well so the heart what does God say about the heart the heart is deceitful above all things you're never deceived because somebody lied to you you can never say and so lied to me you're deceived because you trusted them you take every thought captive everything I say take captive and weigh it to God's word. then you're an individual before God but if you put me between you and God or any man between you and God then they're the Pope That's the priesthood of all believers. And so we're deceived when we trust in man. The faithful of the wounds of a friend. You ever have to hurt a friend's feelings? They're doing their natural inclination. Now sometimes you have to wait overnight to tell them the truth. Truth is always short. You tell them the truth. You, know, you hurt their feelings. They say, you know what, I don't like you. Why don't you go your way and I'll go my way and they hurt your feelings. That's how it usually works. You hurt their feelings, they're going to hurt your feelings. And so the night before, you realize that, so what you do is you take this truth, the Lord gives you a word, and you cut and paste and rearrange it, put it in opinion format, so the next day you can go, I feel and I think to them, and keep the relationship and hope that maybe you've got a month, a year, two years, who knows, uh, to finally bring them to the full truth. Well, this is like the church. You know, you come in a Bible study. This is a mega church, and you open up the text if you happen to have it, and you go around and ask one another how you feel, what you think, and get everybody's opinion. And so, before long, you realize it's opinions is how we all get along in the fellowship. See, I get a lot of phone calls, and most I'm depressed at the end of the day because you're hearing all the problems. And then a young man from Washington calls, and he he quotes not a verse, the whole chapter on my nickel. The whole chapter. I'm going, you know, and then, you know, I'm good for two days. He fed my spirit. My spirit is rejoicing. But opinions don't feed your spirit. And so God gives you his word. This is why you memorize his word. Not going on today in the church. And then the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the word of God, brings it out of your mouth because that's that treasure in you. And you share it with your friend. That word is for their soul, for the eternal life. It's life and death. But you decide, no, I don't want to offend them because the Word of God is an offense. Because I want that relationship. See, what can I get out of this relationship for me? And so you redefine God's Word to keep the relationship with the person. You just stole that soul from God. That's what the church growth movement is all about stealing souls from God because we've moved away from God's Word and changed in an opinion. That's liberation theology. You're liberated from the authority of God. He's the author. Author is a part of authority. And so you're going to wound your friends. By the way, you know, you do this and people say, you know what, I don't like you. And they leave and it breaks your heart. But if they call a week or a month or two years or ten years later and they say, you know, I was so mad at you. But I thought about what you said and you know you're absolutely right and I repented of what what I did or what I'm doing and you now have a friend true friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful you know flattery is like an old fashioned bar of soap uh, made mostly of lie you, 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 need, you need to be aware when people compliment you you know run from it because that's the pride of life because before long you know people you know you say, well, that was pretty good you know what I did was pretty good you know I can justify nothing I've done today nothing at the end of the day it's only what Christ has done in me so that's when I put my head on the pillow and I say, That was a good day, Lord. Look what you did. Because what I did is of nothing, no avail. It's vanity. Vain philosophy. Now, see, there's our wonderful heart. You know, go by the hospital, it says sign up there, we care about you. Are you sure? And desperately wicked. Wow. Oh, for out of the heart of me, and I call it the shopping list of iniquity, out of a sweet, caring, wonderful heart. Our group hug hearts. And lean not to your own understanding. See, we're going to use our heads to justify our hearts. That's what we do the night before. We cut and paste and rearrange the truth for the sake of uh, the village, for the relationship. Well, this is why God flooded the world. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. See, Noah feared God. Didn't fear man. I'm sure he was the butt of everybody's joke. Pretty big restaurant. (laughs) Some of those are pretty small rooms. I don't know how you get people in there. You know, just Everything mocked, ridiculed, made out. Nothing's new under the sun. Well, we're to cast down imaginations. Every high thing exalts itself against the knowledge, the knowing of God. My people are destroyed for lack of knowing. And bring to captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It doesn't say just Christ. It says obedience. That's a pattern. He was obedient to the Father. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even death. Night before the cross, he shared his opinion. Can we do it another way? And then he stopped. He said, Nevertheless, thy will be done. And here, just to reinforce this, this paradigm, this accountability of higher authority, which we all resent, all of us have language in us that challenges authority. He says, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father who sent me, he gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. Read John 17. The whole chapter is Jesus talking to his Father about the disciples. Whose disciples are they? Are they the Lord's disciples? No, they're the Father's disciples. You gave me these men. I have been faithful to you. Everything Jesus is talking about is to the Father. An obedient son, like none of us. And call no man your father upon the earth. That takes care of Catholicism right there. You don't need any other verse. For one is your father which is in heaven. See, dad and mom aren't perfect. You have to understand the office is. Jesus never destroyed the office. He never stepped out of the office. When he told, said the Father, you know, I'll divide the Father from the Son. The Son has come to know the Heavenly Father, so he's still accountable to higher authority. So Jesus never once steps out of this patriarchal paradigm. Not once. And whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven. See this pattern? The same as my brother and sister and mother. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, that's from Genesis to Revelation, that paradigm. Everybody who obeys God obeys is living that paradigm, that way of thinking. Then, here's how it is brought into our life. Hebrews 12, 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? So, God chastens those he loves. Now, sometimes that's a, that's a spank. I, my, my daughter, I think I only spanked her once. After that, I just looked at her. You know, that was it. My son, totally different. <laughs> so, you know, some kids come with ball-peen hammers. Others, with big wrecking balls. But you've got to have the walls you got to have the walls and keep them. Liberty and law. That's where the liberty is. You want lawlessness? Get rid of the law. and Then we have an unstable society. They say you take a blind person and put them in a room where there's no walls. They'll go insane after a while because you're looking for identity. You're looking for limits. But if you be without chastisement, wherever are partakers, then you're bastards and not sons. God says, uh, because you refuse to recognize me and my law... Because you refuse to recognize, I'm the author of the law, and I'm the authority, I chasten you. If you don't recognize that pattern, what's the next verse say? I refuse to recognize your children. For 30, 40 years, we have an educational system that says, get rid of the knowing of God, and the chastening, and the right and wrong. And God is looking at this nation and saying, I don't even know your children. I refuse to recognize them. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And I appreciate this. See, God actually knows what we go through in the chastening. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. You notice that. (laughs) It's grievous to the flesh because you're chasing your natural inclination you know grab a crayon and head to the wall dad or mom comes along and says cannot must not thou shalt not you don't like that but you disobey and then comes the whooping and then you you know you really don't like that nevertheless afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised thereby that means you just learn there is right and there's wrong and there's no confusion Jeremiah says it so well O Lord I know that the way of man is not in himself and is not in man that walks to direct his steps Let no man deceive you with vain words. The Bible always talks about vain philosophy. Philosophy is not of God. You don't need philosophy. You need His Word. Love of wisdom. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And see, we are, like I said, ignorant of Satan's devices. Because as I get in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, it was the Marxists who studied Genesis 3, 1 through 6 the dialectical process and here's the pattern first of all he gets us to think about ourselves what about me then we begin to question authority you know there are different questions God says go down this road and as you're going down uh, you come to a a fork in the road and say okay Lord which way do I go that's a question and he tells you the way to go now the second questioning is now your feelings are involved you see everybody going down the other road you go Lord are you sure? (laughs) Now you begin to question Him. And then you cut across and get on the other road because now God is irrelevant. You can justify. And so in that question is you question authority, all authority, question everything. And so you justify yourselves. That's what we do. We get in our heads, do a little role play, you know, get the video game out, you know, come with a video game. And so we run through it, do us different scenarios and then we come up with what we think is the right solution. And we carry out our justified desires for a natural inclination. That's the imaginational heart. Well, this scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, is a didactic paradigm. Uh, I'm just telling you what we've left as a culture. We've rejected, I taught in a university, the name of my class was American Institutions Abdicating the Foundation. We abdicated, we gave up our foundation. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. My paradigm, in other words, is not your paradigm. My way of thinking is not your paradigm way of thinking. Now, Bill Spadey, a popular man for Goals 2000, he mentioned four men when I uh, first uh, saw Goals 2000 that were foundational to his thought, Benjamin Bloom, John Carroll, James Cohen, and James Block. And I'll get into uh, particularly Benjamin Bloom. But what he says here, I like to think of a paradigm as a total system of believing, perceiving, acting, and interpreting that is used to define and justify how something is. Notice the word justification, because that's very important in all of this. For as by one man disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience... And that's self-justification, see. Adam and Eve self-justified. They justified from the environment. But, see, Jesus was obedient even to death. And so the father justified. Notice in the temptations, what did Jesus say? It is written, it is written, it is written. Dad says... So we're going to take a break, uh, 15 minutes, and uh, then we'll pick up right where we left off here. 18 plus.